0: You're listening to the Nixon Now Podcast. I'm Jonathan Mavroides. This is brought to you by the Nixon Foundation. We're broadcasting from the Richard Nixon Presidential Library in Yorba Linda, California. You can follow us on Twitter at Nixon Foundation or at NixonFoundation.org. Yesterday marks the 47th anniversary of the beginning of the October 1973 war between Israel and Arab states, Egypt and Syria. After over four years of a war of attrition between Israel and its Arab neighbors and diplomatic efforts moving at an hurried pace, President Nixon woke up on the morning of October 6, 1973, to a cable from Ken Keating, America's ambassador to Israel, reporting that Israel's Prime Minister Golda Meir told him Egypt and Syria had launched a two-pronged surprise attack as Israel stood unprepared to defend itself on Yom Kippur, the holiest day on the Jewish calendar. On this edition of the Nixon Now podcast, we explore this topic with William Quant. Dr. Quant served as the Middle East hand on the National Security Councils during the Nixon and Carter administrations. And was actively involved in the negotiations that led to the Camp David Accords in 1978. He is author of the definitive book on the issue, "Peace Process," and is currently professor emeritus in the Department of Politics at the University of Virginia, where he has worked for 25 years. Dr. Quant, welcome. Nice to be with you. Just to start off, uh, could you tell us the situation in the Middle East? Um, it's October. It's between October 1st and October 5th, 1973. What's going on in the Middle East at this point in time? Well, we had
1: been noticing in the actually weeks leading up to uh, this crucial week, uh, October 1st through 6th, uh, a heightened tension primarily on the Egyptian-Israeli front. The Egyptians typically undertook military exercises in the spring and in the fall, and some people said, this is nothing new. We've seen this pretty much every year. Uh, the Egyptians go through this uh, and the Egyptians, the Israelis are watching it carefully. So we don't really need to worry very much. But a few other things made Kissinger, and I think probably President Nixon as well, aware that this might be different. Uh, they had met with, the, um, with uh, Secretary General Brezhnev of the Soviet Union earlier in the summer, and Brezhnev had told them in a kind of late night meeting where he was really quite upset. He said, you know, uh, we are concerned that there's going to be a war in the Middle East before the end of the year. And so they talked a bit about it. And I think at the time, the President and Kissinger thought, this is just Brezhnev trying to pressure us to put pressure on the Israelis to make concessions. And the Israelis have elections coming up and we've already told the Egyptians that after the elections we'll uh, undertake some kind of new political diplomatic initiative. So there's nothing really more that needs to be done right now. In any case, the Egyptians aren't strong enough to start a war. That was pretty much the attitude. But toward the end of September, Kissinger had ordered that we go on a higher level of uh, intelligence collection. So we were getting a lot of information coming in about these Egyptian exercises, and then we saw the Syrians joining. But the Israelis still didn't seem to be reacting with any great alarm. And they, after all, were on the front lines, literally. literally, And they had seen these things careful many times before and analyzed them very carefully. And what we weren't as aware of then as we are today is they had a what they thought was a very, very, reliable intelligence source inside the Egyptian presidency. And they were pretty sure that if anything was ever going to be happening that would threaten them, they would learn about it from this source. So this a man named Ashraf Marwan, there's a whole story about that. But he had not signaled them anything. Now, what changes is that on about October 4th, they do get a message from their source in Egypt, demanding an immediate meeting with their head of intelligence. And they meet in London on either the 4th or 5th of October. This is two days before the war begins. And their source tells them correctly that the war is going to begin on October 6th. And he says that it will begin at two o'clock in the afternoon, which was wrong. It started at six o'clock in the afternoon. But when he I I believe, but I don't know this firsthand, that he told them what he knew at the time. And that, in fact, they had changed the timing of the beginning of the war. So the Israelis had about one day to figure out what, first, is this warning uh, something we need to do anything about? Uh, They had told President Nixon that they would not launch a preemptive war. uh, And Golda Meir seems to have taken that commitment seriously. Uh, And so we heard from them on the day before the war started that they were looking carefully at the situation. Uh, But again, they didn't seem to be panicked. Now, on October 6th, very early in the morning, it was about 6 a.m., and I was the one who received the message that you referred to from uh, Ambassador Keating. It was sent to Washington. The president was actually in Florida at the time and Dr. Kissinger was up in New York. I was in Washington and I was basically on duty to be called in the event that anything happened. So at six o'clock in the morning, I was called at home and I was read the cable from uh, Ambassador Keating, which did not say that the war had begun because it hadn't yet. But he had said that the Israelis now were convinced that the war would begin uh, shortly and that uh, they wanted, and, and this was a message from Golda Meir to the president, uh, and that if by chance this was based on any misunderstanding that Israel was about to launch an attack of its own, she wanted to assure the Egyptians that that was not the case, and she wanted the Americans to, t- to tell them that. Uh, and that was pretty much the message. And then I remember being asked by, the guy in the situation room should we tell the president and Secretary Kissinger I said, of course and immediately. and I went into the office as quickly as I could and arrived there at about uh, about 7 a.m, which was about an hour before the war began and there was a huge pile of paper on my desk. They had been collecting and collecting and collecting intelligence. Uh, I had no staff, I had no assistant. And I thought somewhere in there, there must be something that I need to know, but I don't even know how to start. And by 8 o'clock, we learned that the war had actually begun.
0: Why the demand or why Israel's assurance uh, that they wouldn't uh, launch a preemptive attack? And why why, why did, why did Dr. Kissinger uh, demand restraint on part of the Israelis if they believed an attack were imminent and they were an ally of the United States?
1: You know, it's not entirely clear uh, how or when the commitment was given. But at one point, the Israelis had made the argument that because they were in occupation of the Sinai Peninsula, there was no immediate threat to the heartland of Israel from any military operation that Egypt might carry out. And therefore, they would not be in a future crisis under pressure to launch a preemptive war the way they had been in 1967 when Egyptian troops were literally right on their border. And basically what the Israelis said is that if you accept that we hold the occupied territories until such time as the Arabs are prepared to make peace, we will undertake in future crises not to launch preemptive wars. We'll be able to kind of hold our fire until, you know, and we're stronger anyway. We don't expect them to attack us, but we won't be on this kind of razor's edge of having to launch preemptive wars in order to protect our our borders because we'll be, we have strategic depth. And I think that they tried to consolidate that understanding probably about two years earlier when Nixon and Golda Meir had a kind of historic meeting Um, in which it seems as if they reached an understanding of how they would play the game over the the next year or so, during which time uh, President Nixon had a re-election campaign of his own, and he basically told the Israelis that he wasn't going to be launching any Middle East initiatives during that year, uh, but that he thought the situation needed a diplomatic uh, Saludin, and that he had in mind that after, if he got reelected, that there would be a need to address the issue. And the Israelis said, well, that's fine, but 1973 is our re-election year, so let's reach an agreement that over the next two years, we just manage the, the situation as it is, but after that, uh, we, under- we Israelis understand from that you will want us to be more engaged in some kind of diplomacy. But that was all built on the idea that the balance of power was in Israel's favor. Uh, if there were any threats, they didn't need to immediately go to war to respond to them because they had strategic depth. That was the basic understanding, as I understand it.
0: It's a day later, October seventh, nineteen seventy-three. What are the uh, at this point? What are the uh, Israel or what are the Egyptian and Syrian military positions vis-à-vis the Israeli military position?
1: Well, this is the day on which. Uh, the Egyptians and, and the Syrians felt pretty good about what they had achieved. They had achieved uh, strategic surprise uh, for all intents and purposes. I mean, the Israelis were aware that war was going to happen, but they weren't prepared to do anything in the short amount of time they had. So the Egyptians made this remarkable crossing of the Suez Canal, which was not an easy operation. And by the second day, October seventh, they were digging in on the on the eastern side of the canal. They weren't advancing much beyond it, the, but the Israelis had been obliged to pull back from the canal, and they were encountering, for the first time, Egyptian troops armed with anti-tank missiles that were very, fairly effective. Uh, and so as the Israelis tried to counterattack with tanks and artillery, they were running into um, a kind of weaponry that they were not used to and they were taking losses in addition they were taking some losses in the air from uh, strategic from uh, surface to air missiles that had been brought up close to the canal and the Israelis weren't used to this uh, this level of loss I mean there was no no attack from Egypt inside the Israeli heartland let's be explicit about this Egyptian troops attacked into territory that had been Egyptian territory. Historically, and was in the eyes of most people, including the Israelis. It was Egyptian territory that they were fighting to recover. They weren't carrying out military operation inside Israel proper against civilian targets or anything like that. But there was this concern about if Israel couldn't hold the line in Sinai, Egyptian troops might advance further and further and further closer toward their borders. But the Sinai is pretty big. It's like 150 miles or 200 miles and so there, there was still no sense of imminent panic, but the Israelis weren't used to having this degree of kind of setback. On the Syrian front, and the, one has to note that the Egyptians and Syrians launched the uh, offensive simultaneously at the same time, um, two o'clock in the afternoon on October 6th, uh, their time. The Syrians moved very quickly uh, across a relatively undefended Golan Heights and were approaching the old border between Egypt and Israel. Now, we know today, but nobody knew at the time on neither Israelis nor Americans, that the Syrian tank commanders have been told, if you get to the border, stop, don't cross into Israel proper, because goodness only knows how the Israelis would respond to that. But anyway, on on the second day, the uh, Syrian tanks in the Golan Heights were making uh, a considerable amount of progress. Now, that didn't last for long, but we did notice all this. It you know took hours for us to get good intelligence reports, and we depended on Israelis briefing us. And a lot of the diplomacy that was just beginning to kick in also involved Kissinger calling his uh, Soviet counterpart, not quite counterpart, but his contact, Uh, ambassador Dobrinin in in Washington and trying to make sure that the Soviets knew how seriously we took this and so forth. So that was all kind of going on on day two. Um, But there wasn't, I think on the American side, there was Kissinger certainly felt and I think Nixon came back to Washington on the seventh, he wasn't there for the first day's deliberations. So there was a lot of kind of sorting out what's really going on and how serious are the Israeli losses and, you know, is there any real need to do anything immediate or do we have a little time to figure out what's going on and to see what kind of diplomatic options we have. So that was kind of day two, uh, October 7th. Day, uh, Day three was probably the most tense day for the Israelis because at that point their secretary, their minister of defense, uh, Moshe Dayan, didn't quite have a breakdown, but he, he really panicked. He thought that there was a chance that they were losing control of the battlefield, uh, both on the Egyptian front and on the Syrian front. And he famously made some kind of comment about how the, you know, the, Israel's existence was at threat, which I I think most of the military people did not believe, but they thought that maybe under the stress of events, um, uh, Dayan was having almost a, a breakdown of his own. And this is the day, if there is a moment when there was a kind of nuclear shadow cast over this crisis, it may have been on that day when Dayan tried to persuade the Israeli leadership to activate not to use a nuclear weapon, but to get it ready in case.
0: Could you tell us a little bit about the Washington Special Action Group, um, its mission uh, under the National Security Council, and what was it deployed to do specifically in this crisis on the U.S. side?
1: We probably know that uh, Kissinger had strengthened the National Security Council compared to anything that had existed before during his first period as national security advisor. By 1973, he was both national security advisor and secretary of state, which was a very unusual arrangement. But one of the reforms he had made was to to concentrate more crisis decision-making authority with the national security advisor. And in in pursuit of that, there there is an in the White House something called a Situation Room. It's a conference room, basically. But it's and this was all strengthened and built up more under uh, Nixon and Kissinger. Uh, there is a staff of intelligence professionals who man uh, computers, which were new but very useful for conveying data and information, communications. And we had that all installed in the White House at that time. And so you had a group of maybe 10 or 15 intelligence professionals who were reading diplomatic cables, intelligence cables, and trying to sort things so that people like me on the National Security Council staff had access to the best flow and quickest flow of information so that we could keep our bosses, Kissinger and Nixon informed of what they needed to know. And as part of that, there were a number of of interagency meeting formats that Kissinger could call to deal with different kinds of crises. And the Washington Special Action Group, the so-called WASAG, had been designed as an interagency meeting pretty much at the uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, head of the CIA level. The president would not attend these, but it was one step below a full National Security Council meeting where a president would be there uh, to evaluate breaking crises. And the WASAG then uh, would be called by the National Security Council Uh, By the National Security Advisor, the staff in anticipation of one of these meetings would pull together the most recent uh, relevant information, diplomatic cables, intelligence, whatever seemed to be uh, most uh, important for uh, making decisions. I had the job of doing that for Kissinger and trying to get him prepared. He was as prepared on his own as he needed to be, but just in case there was anything additional Uh, And then we would call the meeting uh, for usually one in the morning, one in the afternoon as a way of making sure that State Department, Defense Department, Intelligence, sometimes uh, Treasury, sometimes Department of Energy, depending on what the issues were, would all be pretty much working from the same script. And we must have had 20 or 30 of those meetings over the next two or three weeks.
0: Was there any, within this group and in the administration at large, was there considerable considerable debate on how to manage this crisis and what the goals of the administration would be?
1: Uh, first, there wasn't, I wouldn't say there was very much division of opinion. There's one possible exception to that, which maybe we have time to talk about. But by and large, um have to remember the moment we're at. This is a moment when Kissinger is both Secretary of State and National Security Advisor. Historically, there had been times when a Secretary of State and National Security Advisor saw things differently, and that had been true in the first Nixon term with William Rogers as Secretary of State and Kissinger as National. That no longer was a problem. Secretary of State and the National Security Advisor were the same person, Although, weirdly enough, the Secretary of State would write memos to the President, sending them through the National Security Advisor, who would add a separate memo of his own to the Secretary of State's memo. It's just a bureaucratic kind of gimmick, but it gave him a slightly more private channel that his colleagues at State wouldn't necessarily know about. Anyway, the that was not a problem. There were institutional kind of differences in terms of the way people look at crises. I mean, the Defense Department has a major job of mobilizing and using uh, military resources. So they're not consulted on the diplomacy. It's just not their job. But they're very important when it comes to moving military equipment and how do you do it and what's the most efficient way and so forth and so on. So we weren't expecting that we were going to go to war. In fact, we were pretty sure that that wouldn't wouldn't come to that, although toward the end, we weren't so sure. But at the beginning, we were pretty sure that the Israelis would turn this around to their advantage fairly quickly as they had in the 1967 war. But what we hadn't known is that the Israelis, by about the third or fourth day, became very insistent that they needed resupplies of military equipment and needed it very urgently. And that did become an issue, not so much between Kissinger and the Defense Department, but between the United States and Israel over the timing of this. Because by the time we were in a position to respond to the Israeli requests when we thought maybe they really did need some, we were also exploring the possibility of an early ceasefire in place that would end the war quickly. And for a brief moment, we thought that the Soviet Union was in favor of that. And we thought and we, we got the Israelis to agree to it. And so the understanding on Kissinger's side, and he was the one who was trying to manage all this, was that we're very close to seeing this, the, the war possibly come to an end. If we can end this without a massive intervention of our own through military resupplies to Israel, that would end without massive intervention by the Russians, that would be the best ending for this war. Uh, And so we don't want to overreact uh, by sending Israel a lot of military equipment if the war can be ended through diplomacy, which we think it can be. So there were two or three days when that was largely a a discussion that went on between Kissinger and Nixon with the Israelis pressing for a quick answer. When are we gonna know? What what are you gonna be able to do for us? And meanwhile, Kissinger was dealing with the Russians, dealing with European allies, and engaging in back-channel negotiations with the Egyptians, and he thought, He could see it coming together, at least for a brief moment, uh, in terms of a ceasefire on about October 11th or 12th. Meanwhile, the Defense Department was told, get ready just in case. And what seems in some accounts to be a major split between Defense Department and Kissinger came about because in order to deflect criticism from himself, I believe, uh, Kissinger said to the Defense Department, I've got to explain to the Israelis why there seems to be a delay, and you're going to have to take the the blame for that, uh, because I have to deal with the Israelis day in and day day out on the diplomacy, and I don't want them to think that I'm the bad guy in this. So there was a very explicit understanding that if it came to the point where we needed to explain to the Israelis why it would take another day or two to get the airlift going, It had to be the bureaucratic obstructionism of the Defense Department. And that did come out later into the open, and Schlesinger denied it publicly. Uh, Kissinger wrote it into his memoirs, uh, even though I don't think it was quite accurate. Um, And it has left the impression of more discord within the U.S. decision-making process than was actually
0: uh, warranted. Could you take us through some of the, um, the iterations of the airlift? I understand that on October 9th, um, Nixon and Kissinger were beginning to order uh, consumables uh, right. uh, to the uh, Israelis via El Al uh, commercial flights. And then that sort of that manifested itself into a full-on Defense Department uh, airlift a couple of days later. Could you take us through that process and how that happened?
1: Right. Right. Um. On the night of October 8th, if I recall correctly, uh, Kissinger met with the Israeli um, ambassador, Simka Dinitz, who had just returned from Israel, and was conveying a, the sense of how upset the Israelis were and how the war wasn't going the, uh, the way they had expected. Their casualties were much higher than they had admitted, and they were losing more planes and uh, tanks and artillery and all the rest. And so he uh, met privately with uh, Kissinger. And there's at least one part of the meeting where nobody else was present. And so we have no record of it. But he seems to have said to Kissinger, that Golda Meir is so worried um, that she's considering making a, a quick trip to the United States to appeal in person to the president for help. And Kissinger tells it, tells Dennitz that would be a real mistake. It will make it look like you're panicking. And it also will not, you know, we know we can make the decisions without being pressured that way. Uh, so beginning the next day, and he said, you know, we will replace any of your losses. So we guarantee you that whatever losses you you know, military equipment, things like that, that you lose during the war will be replaced. Now, how quickly we can do some of it is a, just logistical. But you can start picking up consumables, that is ammunition, the, the things that are ready to go, easy to put together, a uh, package for you to pick up. Uh, you can start carrying them in your own uh, planes. But we want to keep our role as discreet as possible. So paint out your El Al- uh, colors on your own civilian planes, you come to a discreet airbase where there aren't a bunch of journalists watching, and uh, we'll deliver. We'll start the deliveries like tomorrow, and that began. But it was the the lower order things, like uh, some actually quite important things, like communications equipment and uh, ammunition, things like that. But you couldn't put an aircraft on one of their planes or a tank on one of their planes. The things that were more visible and, you know, over the long term that uh, would need to be replaced would normally have been either flown in with several stops along the way. Uh, None of the fighter aircraft could fly all that distance without refueling. Uh, So you you could get them there, but only if you could land somewhere to refuel. And the Europeans weren't going to, allow us to to stop and implicate them in our military resupply of the Israelis. So that became an issue between the United States and Europe about resupply. And then tanks simply didn't fit on any uh, of the aircraft we had except for the C5, the really huge uh, transport planes. And I think you could carry one or two at a time, which given the number of losses that the Israelis were taking, wasn't going to make a very big impact, uh, at best. And you know, so the Israelis wanted everything and they wanted it immediately. So there was some genuine gap between their hopes and our abilities. But then there was also this period when we consciously decided, for the sake of our future diplomatic credibility, that we didn't look like we, we didn't want to look like we were. Um, Intervening militarily uh, on the Israeli side, if we could bring the war to an end quickly through, diploma, through diplomacy. And part of the reason for that was that we were in back channel communication with the Egyptians who were saying, when the war's over, we Americans to launch a diplomatic initiative to end this conflict once and for all. And I think Kissinger was beginning to think maybe. Sadat is different from what we've expected. And if so, I want to be able to deal with him and with the Israelis when this is over, which is a very delicate balance to try to maintain while you're also resupplying the Israelis with the equipment that they're using to ultimately nearly defeat the Egyptian army. So what tips the balance? What tips the balance is that the the Soviet Union starts to resupply Syria, Iraq, and Egypt on the 10th of October. And we don't know what they're sending, but we know how many planes they're sending. And so each one of the things that would happen at each of these WASAG meetings in the mornings and then in the afternoon is we would tally up the number of planes that had flown from the Soviet Union to Egypt, to Syria, uh, and Iraq was getting some as well. And theoretically figure out they could have delivered X number of tons, like a thousand tons of uh, military equipment through these various flights. Uh, And Kissinger began to react to that by, first of all, trying to persuade the Soviets to stop or to slow it down and to try to get the ceasefire in place. So... Second day went on with the Soviets continuing to resupply. I mean, their credibility was on the line and the, on the Syrian front, the Syrians were losing territory. The, The Israelis had pretty much reconquered most of the Golan Heights by the 9th of October. So on the Syrian front, the, the Russians were sending in equipment fairly quickly. And of course, for them, it's a shorter flight and they could get more things there (coughs) than we could. So on the 11th and 12th, Kissinger's trying to get the ceasefire in place. He thinks he's about to get it, and it falls apart on the 12th of October when Sadat rejects the proposal. And at that point, Nixon and Kissinger jointly, but particularly Nixon, I believe, says, if Sadat doesn't understand that this is the time to stop the war, we have to make sure he understands that he's not going to be able to sit there and drag this out. Uh, we have to, to change the balance of power by resupplying the Israelis massively and visibly. And that began on the 12th 13th with the direct airlift American uh C1 C5s could fly all the way on their own C130s had to refuel and we had to pressure the, the uh, Portuguese government which was the only European government that we could pressure sufficiently to get them to give us landing rights to allow refueling in the largest air base in the Azores and so by the 13th we were beginning to see a flow of some equipment in all honesty the Israelis fought mostly the entire war without making much use of the equipment that came by the airlift, but the airlift was visibly underway by the 12th and 13th. And it gave the Israelis the confidence to launch a military operation on the Egyptian front on the 13th, which resulted in their eventually, two days later, crossing the Suez Canal and beginning to envelop the Egyptian forces that were in the Sinai. And at that point, the dynamic of the war changes dramatically. The Israelis are on the offensive. The Egyptians are under a lot of pressure to bring this to an end quickly. And the balance of forces is such that the Soviets begin to worry that their clients are about to experience a a major defeat, and they get nervous. And they continue the airlift, but they also uh, ask for uh, Nixon to send Kissinger to Moscow for talks to to bring the war to an end.
0: Do you think the, had the airlift not happened, do you think the war, uh, do you think it would have ended as quickly or whether would, would have, uh, the Israelis would have been able to envelop the Egypt's third army at the Suez Canal? It's
1: an interesting question. I mean, on the Syrian front, most of the Is- Israelis had already uh, made their advances and were actually fairly deep into <clears throat> territory that they hadn't held before 1973. So it really, the airlift has nothing much to do with the dynamic on the Syrian front, which was already pretty much resolved. The, the point about the Egyptian front is that Sadat had crossed the canal <clears throat> and then it just dug in and sat there. He hadn't moved. And that was the case up until about the 12th of October. Uh, Under pressure from the Syrians, who were annoyed that Egypt was sitting tight and they were getting clobbered, was beginning to call for their help and uh, all the rest. And I I guess they were under some pressure to to respond. Uh, They began, they they launched probably an an ill-considered offensive deeper into Sinai and they got out from under the cover of the surface-to-air missiles that had been protecting them along the canal. And the Israelis used their air force, and this was all equipment that they had before the airlift had ever started to decimate the Egyptian tanks coming toward their forces in what were called the passes, about halfway across the Sinai. So that was probably the crucial battle, all fought before the airlift made any impact. And at that point, I think the Egyptians had a, uh, that was a serious setback for them. The chance that they could advance further into the Sinai and hold territory deep into Sinai had been lost. The question was, could, would that then mean a ceasefire in place would go into effect at that point where they would still have their bridgehead across the, <clears throat> the canal, but not much more, uh, or with the Israelis launched launch this counteroffensive that began on about the 13th or 14th. The question is a political one, would Golda Mayer have authorized the counter-offensive if she had not known that the airlift was on its way? And I don't know the answer to that, uh, but she did on the 13th give the green light to Herv Sharon, the most aggressive of her generals who wanted to launch the counter-offensive. And he didn't fight the, he didn't cross the canal making use of anything that came in the airlift he was ready to go and but he knew that whatever losses he would take would soon be replaced so i think psychologically it made it easier for the israelis to take what is a difficult operation you know you're crossing a water barrier i mean they actually had it very well planned and it went it was textbook crossing it went right between two Egyptian armies and then they ended up being in a position to to encircle them. <clears throat> so I think the question is would they would the political leadership on the Israeli side have had the the guts to launch to to give the order to the military. The military was ready to do it. They would have they, they were eager to do it uh, and they probably could have done it without the airlift. But I think the political leadership felt much more confidence knowing that the airlift was underway, even though, as I say, the bulk of the resupplies that we eventually sent to the Israelis came by ship weeks after the war was over.
0: You, um, you talked a little bit earlier about the possible use of nuclear weapons. Could you expand on this possible consideration on the part of the Israelis? You know, at the
1: time, I didn't have a so-called Q-clearance, nuclear clearance, so I didn't ever see very much that would have given me more knowledge about Israeli nuclear capabilities than I had. There were people who probably knew more, but generally it was known on the American side that the Israelis had some number of nuclear weapons. We didn't know probably in detail how many uh, they had not at that point uh, <clears throat> been tested, at least not in any way that we we knew of, but we did know that they had uh, F-4 aircraft that we had supplied them that they had flown during exercises in a pattern that suggested that they were training pilots on how to deliver a nuclear weapon, because if you're dropping a nuclear weapon, you don't want to fly over where it has just exploded. So the way of apparently flying the plane is you do a very quick reversal of direction, you do a loop backwards after you've dropped. And we noticed that they were flying in that pattern just to get their pilots ready. So we knew that the F-4 was being, uh, F-4 pilots were being trained for the hypothetical possibility that one day they might be dropping a nuclear device. And we also knew that they had acquired uh, Jericho missiles from France, which were surface-to-surface missiles that were not particularly accurate; therefore, not appropriate for a conventional warhead. And we we knew where they were based, and we monitored them. And as I have said in other places, and will repeat here, I remember that on about the eighth of October, I saw a fragment of intelligence that said that the Jericho base, uh, which would be the one that, if they did use nuclear weapons on missiles, uh, would be uh, the base they used, uh, the Jericho missiles were put on a higher state of alert than they had been on it previously. I never heard this discussed in an intelligence briefing. It wasn't of such magnitude that other people were worrying about what it meant. But I remember reading it and thinking that the Israelis are signaling to us by this action that they're getting nervous and have it and probably not just signaling us, but also the Russians and through the Russians, the Syrians and the Egyptians. In other words, if this was intentional, the message would be if you have any illusions that we will sit back and allow ourselves to be militarily defeated, uh, think again. Now, we, we do know now, I didn't know at the time, that probably on about that day, there was uh, some concern on the part of the Israeli Minister of Defense, Moshe Dayan, uh, that the military situation was getting so bad, that it would be worth considering what he called a demonstrative nuclear blast in the Sinai, just to remind everybody that we've got these things. And he apparently wanted to discuss it in the security cabinet meeting with the prime minister. And he wanted his nuclear specialist to be brought into the cabinet meeting to brief the prime minister so she would know what her options were. And we now know, but I didn't know at the time, that she refused to have that meeting. She said, no, we're not going to do that. It's not going to be necessary. And she turned him down. And uh, that's the last I know of any active consideration by the Israelis of the possible use of a nuclear device.
0: There were, um, towards the end of the month, there were ceasefires put into place. There was a first and a second ceasefire. And on the second ceasefire, um, the to enforce that ceasefire, the Soviets had talked about bringing their troops in and um, conducting a joint, inviting the United States to conduct a joint uh, peacekeeping uh, operation. Uh, could you talk about this a little bit, and specifically the decision on on the part of the Nixon administration to raise the alert of military re- readiness to DEFCON uh, DEFCON three?
1: Right. Okay. Um, so Nixon. Uh, does uh, agree to send Kissinger to Moscow with authority to negotiate a ceasefire. And while he's there, uh, uh, must have been October 20th, 21st or so, uh, they do reach agreement on a so called ceasefire in place that should go into effect at a certain hour on October 22nd. And uh, that's about 24 hours after the meeting in Moscow. So Kissinger leaves Moscow uh, and flies to Israel to tell the Israelis that it's time to wrap this up, because the Israelis are still carrying out this envelopment operation that surrounded the Egyptian second and third armies. And they had the bit in their teeth at this point, and they thought they were going to be able to basically destroy two full Egyptian armies if they had a bit more time. But Kissinger just agreed with Nixon's support that it was time for the war to end, and he'd gotten the Russians to agree. And so uh, a UN resolution had been passed, UN Resolution 338, calling for an immediate ceasefire and the beginning of negotiations under, I think it was called, appropriate international auspices, which meant U.S. and Soviet Union. So Kissinger goes to uh, Israel, meets with the mayor and says, you've got a few more hours and then you're going to have to stop because we've got this U.N. resolution that we've worked out with the uh, Russians. And it's, it's it's you've had plenty of time to ensure a strong military position. And now it's time to stop. And she was not happy because she thought they were on the verge of a big victory against over the Egyptians. And she. You know, she was being blamed for having been hesitant at the beginning of the war, and she was trying to save her political career by showing how tough she could be at the end, I suppose. Anyway, Kissinger leaves Israel with what he thinks is their understanding that the ceasefire will go into effect within a few hours. And he unfortunately seems to say something like the following. I'll be in the air for the next six or seven hours and during that time nobody's going to pay too much attention if you you know go a little bit longer or a little bit further than you've gone already in other words saying you've got a little bit more time than than I just told you you had in other words don't take the ceasefire quite literally but you've got to stop pretty quickly and unfortunately that seems to have given the Israelis the sense that the Americans will understand if we just finish this operation of surrounding the Egyptian Third Army. We have to then think about it from Sadat's point of view. He's about to have two of his army corps completely surrounded and dependent on Israel's goodwill for allowing water, food, anything through. And so he panics and he calls for both the Americans and the Russians to immediately insist that the ceasefire go into a, into effect right away and it, that's and that's kissinger arrives back and this is the period when the discussion starts going on on the 23rd about getting the israelis to to stop their advance and uh, the russians start saying yeah, you're telling us that you're going to get the Israelis to stop, but we're watching this in real time, and they're not stopping. They're still advancing. And so Kissinger says, it says or Brezhnev says, why don't we both jointly uh, undertake to send some kind of a enforcement uh, force to impose the ceasefire? And Kissinger, I think, with Nixon's authority says that's a terrible idea because then it becomes a big superpower issue and we're going to be face to face in the Middle East and it's bad enough the way things are now but we want to keep the superpowers out of this as a military as military actors <clears throat> and meanwhile he tries to convince the Israelis to stop you know you've, you've taken a little bit more time you've advanced but I didn't mean just go crazy by what I told you when I was there. I meant stop, and now's the time to really do it. So toward the end of the day, I guess on the 23rd or 24th, I'm not quite sure, Brezhnev, Secretary General of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union sends a message that is harsher in tone than previous ones that he sent. I guess it's 24th in in Russia, and it's the 23rd in uh, it's 23rd in the evening, I think, in in Washington. And the message basically says we've been telling you and telling you that the Israelis are not abiding by the ceasefire. You keep brushing us off, saying you're not going to join us in a joint intervention. Uh, but we now must tell you that if you do not succeed in getting the Israelis to stop, we will. Be, we must take. <clears throat> all necessary means, including military, uh, to get the Israelis to comply. And that sounds like a threat of military intervention. Was it credible? It could have been because the Israelis, had, the, the Soviets had stopped the airlift that they <clears throat> had been mounting. All of their aircraft for the airlift had been taken back to the Soviet Union. And they had seven airborne divisions on alert. And they had the transportation to get them there. And of course, to get from the Soviet Union to the Sinai would have been a matter of a few hours. So I don't think that Nixon or Kissinger really believed that the Soviet Union was about to send a massive invasion force to the Middle East to enforce the ceasefire, but they had the capability to send quite a substantial force on very short not- notice. And it, <clears throat> it was Kissinger's idea <clears throat> at a National Security Council meeting held in the evening, I think of the 23rd, maybe the 24th, without the presence of the president uh, to raise the alert level to uh, worldwide to so-called um, DEFCON 3, which is not, It's not like you're about to go to nuclear war, but it does mean that in on air bases all over the world, American air bases, people will be recalled to duty. They'll be put on high alert. Uh, B-52 bombers will be uh, loaded with ammunition, including nuclear weapons and put up in the air and missiles will be put on alert. It's there's still two more stages to go before you have nuclear war. And all of the forces in the Middle East were already on DEFCON 3, so nothing changed on the Sixth Fleet or any anything that was close to the region was already on alert. But it meant that anybody who was uh, subject to military authority was was getting messages overnight to report to their bases the next morning. So on the American s- scene, <clears throat> nothing was kept secret. It was Everybody was talking about it the next morning. Uh, I think Kissinger was a little surprised how many people knew by the morning of the October 24th that we had done something overnight to increase the level of alert but it was designed to show to the Russians that we were really concerned with this threat that they had sent and as far as we know now Brezhnev did this in a kind of no nobody in the room with him thought that it was a real threat that they were going to do anything it was like a bluff but, you know, in, in international politics between superpowers, you don't know what's a bluff. And you can't afford to assume this is, there's no consequence if you just you ignore it. <clears throat> so by the next morning, and this I remember pretty vividly, uh, we didn't know quite what the response was. We had an evening of trying to monitor <coughs> whether there were any forces moving on the soviet side and we convened one of the WASAC meetings early on the 24th and we got a fragment of intelligence it was just that It it was an incomplete message from moscow to its embassy in cairo saying troops arrive this afternoon just that's the piece we got of it didn't say how many it didn't say who they were but i remember i was standing right with Kissinger when the message came in, <clears throat> and he said, oh my God, they really are planning to send troops in. And he looked at me and at my colleague from the State Department, he said, you two, you figure out where we send troops if they really do go ahead with this. But not to Israel and not to, uh, not to any uh, uh, Arab country uh, because we, we don't want, we want to make clear that this is aimed at deterring Soviet moves. We don't want to get embroiled with the Arab-Israeli conflict. And he walked out of the room. I looked at my colleagues and said, I can't think of any place to, you know, Cyprus maybe, uh, but the British wouldn't be too happy about that. Um, Diego Garcia, again, under British control, they didn't want anything to do with it. So we were totally stymied. Where are we going to even imagine sending troops? The Europeans don't want to have anything to do with this there's no other place in the middle east turkey won't take them i mean they were allowing soviet planes to fly over their territory they weren't going to align themselves with us even though they were a nato ally and within about 20 minutes kissinger walks back and he says forget about it he said we misread that little bit of intelligence what he said i forgot that i had agreed when i was in moscow that we would each send a small observer force to monitor the ceasefire, military observers, not combat troops. And this was the Soviets telling their embassy that the 32 observers were going to arrive that afternoon. <laughs> and I thought, well, glad we had the ability to clear that up very quickly because we were completely clueless as to where we would send you know, units of our own had it come to that. And with that, uh, the United States and Soviet Union were back talking and agreed to, that the ceasefire would happen. And then Kissinger went to the Israelis and said, now you've got to stop. And if you don't, we will come and resupply the Egyptians. And you really don't want us to be forcing our way through your lines to do that. So you've got to open up uh, a passage for uh, food and water to go to the troops. You cannot uh, starve them out. And that was a gesture toward Egypt, which was saying to us pretty clearly: uh, once this is over, we want to talk to you immediately. And of course, five days later, Kissinger was in, or uh, a week or so later, Kissinger was in Cairo having his first meeting with Anwar Sadat.
0: From the Nixon administration's perspective, uh, what did what did peace ultimately look ultimately look like? What was it? Do they want a sort of parody uh, in the Middle East? Do they want want the enforcement of Resolution 242? What was their, I guess, what was the end game for peace for the Nixon administration?
1: I think here there's a little difference between uh, Nixon in his prime when he was really thinking strategically and Kissinger, who was (coughs) managing (coughs) this crisis not entirely on his own, but very much without very much presidential guidance. Kissinger, Nixon's view, which he expressed many times before the war had broken out, was that the Middle East was kind of like the Balkans in before World War I. It was a, an area where major powers had conflicting interests and local quarrels could explode and draw in these outside powers and lead to much bigger wars than the local issues warranted. And he, he thought the Arab-Israeli issue needed to be resolved because it had the potential of disrupting the US-Soviet relationship and perhaps even leading to a military confrontation. And he was relatively open-minded about cooperating with the Soviet Union. Remember, this was the era of detente, to see if the Soviets could use their influence with the Arab parties with whom they had better relations and we would use our influence with the Israelis to try to impose or at least persuade the parties to accept something like a UN Resolution 242 agreement, which simply stated would mean that the Israelis in return for peace agreements with their Arab neighbors Uh, and security arrangements like demilitarization and perhaps other assurances would return virtually all of the territories that they had occupied in 1967. That is the Golan Heights, the West Bank, and Sinai. That's pretty much the straightforward land for peace uh, bargain built into UN resolution 242. And I think Nixon felt that if we could do this with the Soviet Union, it would prevent this possibility of a confrontation that both parties would, would never uh, would 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 prefer to avoid. Kissinger, who on this issue probably was more sympathetic to the Israelis, just for personal reasons, he you know he was closer to Israelis. He had family members who died in the Holocaust. He came at, at this with more of a a personal agenda than, than Nixon did. Uh, but he also, I think, was more skeptical of the uh, Soviet Union as a potential partner for kind of putting on this, this kind of U.S.-Soviet pressure to bring about a peace settlement. Even though I think he understood that an Arab Israeli peace was a desirable objective, he wanted to do it more through basically American-led diplomacy, not— joint US Soviet diplomacy, and used to talk about expelling the Soviet Union from the Middle East as a goal of American diplomacy. So there was some, I think, difference in in tactics between uh, Nixon and Kissinger, but they both, I think, understood the strategic importance of trying to solve as much as possible of the Arab-Israeli conflict uh, in order to avoid future global, superpower confrontations. And the 73 war was a reminder of how dangerous things could become if you couldn't solve this problem. So in the aftermath of the war, I think Kissinger was real convert to the idea that we need to now use our diplomatic power <clears throat> to bring about a peace settlement, if at all possible, at least with Egypt, and it, possibly Egypt and <clears throat> and Syria and Jordan. He didn't take the, the Palestinian issue very seriously, I think nor did, nor did President Nixon at that time. But remember, uh, as the crisis in October was coming to an end, we also had a new crisis uh, confronting us, namely the Arab oil producers were cutting back production, uh, imposing uh, an embargo on shipments of oil to the United States and to Japan, And all of a sudden, the oil markets were going crazy, and by the end of 1973, the price of oil had quadrupled, and we'd never confronted anything like it in the United States. We had gas lines, and people were feeling the effects of a Middle East crisis on a daily basis in the United States. They couldn't get gas for their cars. I'm old enough to remember sitting in lines, waiting, and you could, after an hour or so, get to the front of the line, and you could kept five gallons of gas. And it was only a dollar a gallon, but there were price controls. And so instead of just uh, letting the price go high and letting gasoline be rationed by price, for political reasons, Nixon put on price controls, but that meant there were real shortages in various parts of the country. And Americans were saying, when is this going to end? So one of the motivations, you know, perhaps not the most strategically important, but for politicians and for people having to answer to the public every day was, we'll end this through diplomacy. We'll get Arab-Israeli peacemaking going, and the Arabs will lift the embargo, which they eventually did. But they didn't do it until after uh, Nixon and Kissinger had brought about two negotiated agreements, one between Egypt and Israel in January 1974, and then between uh, Syria and Israel in uh, May of 1974, the so-called disengagement agreements. And then the embargo was lifted, the threat of kind of, you know, the oil problem going on indefinitely was eased, and American diplomacy was kind of established as we can get results. Even with difficult regimes like the Syrians, we can produce results. But then we, of course, had um, uh <clears throat> and, A a new president, uh, President uh, Nixon resigned. New president came in. He had to get his bearings, figure out his new team, how he was going to approach things and get himself properly elected to office in 1976. So we lost momentum in the after the first six months or so. We did have a, a second round of diplomacy under. President Ford, in September uh, of 1975, there was a so-called Second Sinai Agreement, but it was a much less satisfactory agreement. It was uh, much more uh, time-consuming and much more expensive in terms of American commitments, and it left a very bad taste. So there were, nobody quite knew where to go next with this diplomacy, and that's kind of when the, the Nixon-Kissinger-Ford um, momentum in Arab-Israeli peacemaking kind of reached its
0: end. Our guest today is Dr. William Quant, Professor Emeritus of Politics at the University of Virginia and former National Security Council official to Presidents Nixon and Carter working on Middle East issues. Our topic was the Nixon administration's actions during the October 1973 Middle East War. Dr. William Quant, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Please check back for feature podcasts at nixonfoundation.org or on your favorite podcast app. This is Jonathan Mavroides in your bulletin.